Nicola Sturgeon has a strong claim to be Britain's most successful active politician. She's been the First Minister of Scotland since 2014. She's gone from one electoral success to another since 1999. And she's still enormously popular. She towers over Scottish politics and in a way UK politics because she's been a, a constant when so much else has been in flux. And all that meant her resignation this morning was a mammoth, mammoth political event. We're going to be talking for most of tonight's show, or at least the first half, about Nicola Sturgeon's resignation. We've got some great Scottish guests lined up for you. We are going to talk about some other topics as well. Tonight in the second half of the show, we're talking about, I mean, a story that probably would have led our show on a normal day, which is that Keir Starmer has confirmed he will not allow Jeremy Corbyn to stand as a Labour candidate at the next general election. I'll be joined by Riley Quinn from Trash Future Podcast to talk about that story and a couple of others in the second half of the show. Let's start with that moment in this morning's speech that Sturgeon announced her resignation. It is a privilege beyond measure, one that has sustained and inspired me in good times and through the toughest hours of my toughest days. I am proud to stand here as the first female and longest serving incumbent of this office. And I'm very proud of what has been achieved in the years I've been in Butte House. However, since my very first moment in the job, I have believed that part of serving well would be to know almost instinctively when the time is right to make way for someone else. And when that time came, to have the courage to do so, even if to many across the country and in my party, it might feel too soon. In my head and in my heart, I know that time is now, that it is right for me, for my party and for the country. And so today I am announcing my intention to step down as First Minister and leader of my party. So as I say, it's a bombshell announcement. It will shake UK politics, and it came as a massive surprise. So why, we left to ask, why has Nicola Sturgeon made this decision right now? Well, she has of late been tied up in a pretty contentious constitutional wrangle over gender recognition reform. But today she was keen to stress this resignation wasn't due to short-term factors. Though I know it will be tempting to see it as such, this decision is not a reaction to short-term pressures. Of course, there are difficult issues confronting the government just now, but when is that ever not the case? I have spent almost three decades in frontline politics, a decade and a half on the top or second top rung of government. When it comes to navigating choppy waters, resolving seemingly intractable issues, or soldiering on when walking away would be the simpler option, I have plenty of experience to draw on. So if this was just a question of my ability or my resilience to get through the latest period of pressure, I wouldn't be standing here today. So that was Sturgeon saying that this wasn't just due to short-term factors. She says instead that over her eight years as First Minister, the job has simply drained her of the energy to keep giving it 100%. And she specifically cited the toll of the pandemic. Leading this country through the COVID pandemic is by far the toughest thing I've done. It may well be the toughest thing I ever do. I certainly hope so. Now, by no stretch of the imagination was my job the hardest in the country during that time. 
But the weight of responsibility was immense. And it's only very recently, I think, that I've started to comprehend, let alone process, the physical and mental impact of it on me. In terms of the effects Sturgeon believed her resignation would have, she said it would give next month's SNP conference the freedom to decide on its preferred path to a referendum. She said it would be unfair for her to have undue influence over that decision if she wasn't going to oversee the process as leader. And she also said a fresh face could help the independence cause as eight years in power meant she herself had become polarising. And on that topic of polarisation, she also said this. I feel more and more each day now that the fixed opinions people increasingly have about me, as I say, some fear, others little more than caricature, are being used as barriers to reasoned debate in our country. Statements and decisions that should not be controversial at all quickly become so. Issues that are controversial end up almost irrationally so. Too often I see issues presented and as a result viewed not on their own merits, but through the prism of what I think and what people think about me. I've always been of the belief that no one individual should be dominant in any system for too long. But while it's easy to hold that view in the abstract, it is much harder to live by it. With this decision, I am trying to do so. Indeed, if all parties were to take this opportunity to depolarise public debate just a bit, to focus more on issues than on personalities, and to reset the tone and the tenor of our discourse, then this decision, right for me and I believe for my party and the country, might also prove to be good for our politics. I certainly live in hope. It does seem a little bit optimistic to me, the idea that once Nicola Sturgeon resigns, people will suddenly start talking much more rationally about politics. But I suppose it's, the fourth is an admirable one. In any case, to discuss the significance of Nicola Sturgeon's resignation, I spoke earlier to editor of The National, Laura Webster. The National, if you're not aware, is a pro-independence newspaper. And I started by asking Laura whether Nicola Sturgeon's announcement came as a surprise to her. In some ways, yes. I think the timing of it today is quite surprising. I think uh, there's obviously been a lot of speculation that this was coming for a little while. Nobody can be First Minister forever. She's already served for over eight years. So in a sense, we thought maybe in the next few months. But yeah, this morning was really surprising. Uh, all the journalists in the Scottish Parliamentary Group WhatsApp started talking to each other and saying, we're hearing that there's going to be a press conference. At 11, and this is quite unusual, and uh, normally the Scottish government would give us lots of advance warning. So it was very surprising today. And I mean, her argument is that this isn't to do with short-term events. I suppose as an onlooker, you're watching it, and you think, well, if this, is, if this seems so rushed, presumably there must have been something, there must have been a breaking point that made her decide this now. People are talking about maybe the row over gender recognition reforms. Also, there are suggestions that it could be to do with a police investigation into the finances of the SNP, which has sort of progressed quite recently. Might it be the case that sort of a few weeks or months down the line, we find out that the reason she resigned at this point right now was not necessarily something she explicitly said in her, in her speech? It's possible, isn't it? There's, you never read somebody's mind in, in politics. I'm sure Boris Johnson didn't resign exactly for the reasons why he resigned. But yeah, there's, there's a lot 
underlying this situation. I think the media is very keen to make this story about gender recognition reform, but in actual fact, there's a lot going on within the SNP on the strategy ahead to independence. So basically last year, the Supreme Court found that Scotland can't hold a referendum without the permission of Westminster. And in some ways, that provided the independence movement with a lot of ammunition. You know, you have the argument that how is it a voluntary union if only one part of that union can let the other one leave? But at the same time, it has brought up a lot of issues for what is the actual path ahead? How do we actually get to independence now? And everybody has a different opinion on how that will work. So while Nicola Sturgeon had said before the Supreme Court verdict that she would do a de facto referendum at the next general election, this has turned into quite an unpopular uh, vision for uh, the Scottish people. So we know from the most recent polling that about two thirds of people reject the idea. And even within the SNP, there are huge splits. There is definitely no clear consensus. There's a group of people that would like to see the next Hollywood election used. There's a group of people who would like a Holyrood election to be triggered now and that to be used as a de facto referendum. There's a group of people who are completely and utterly opposed to using any kind of election as a de facto referendum. Even this week, we had Minister Ivan McKee writing in The National saying that the word yes has to be on the ballot paper. So that could be through changing the party's name or creating a new yes party. And when you've got ministers saying this, it's very clear that the leader hasn't got any kind of consensus or agreement amongst her party members. And since we're talking about internal factions within the SNP, who are the runners and riders to, to replace her? Who is going to be thinking, I want to take her role? And I mean, we often talk about politicians when they resign. It's normally because they think the person who's going to replace them is not someone that they're completely opposed to. So might it be the case that Nicola Sturgeon has someone in mind, even if she's not explicitly saying so? Yeah, so I think the unspoken person is probably Angus Robertson. So he's the Constitution Secretary, and of course that role involves a lot of talking about independence. So you can imagine that he would have been primed for it. He's also had roles like SNP Westminster leader, so he would be probably the most likely person to take over at the moment. That would be who I would be putting my money on. But we'll have to wait and see because there hasn't been an SNP leadership election for a long time. I'm sure a lot of people are kind of chomping at the bit to put their name forward and have their moment in the sun. And there's also Kate Forbes, who's been away on maternity leave for the last several months. Kate Forbes seems to have differing views on gender recognition. It's not something she's spoken about particularly publicly before but it is understood that she has a different position from Nicola Sturgeon on that. So that could cause some issues at the higher levels of the party. John Swinney is a name that we're hearing a lot. He's the Deputy First Minister, and he's also a bit of a party stalwart. He's been around for a very long time. But yeah, there's, there's no consensus. We're running a poll on our website, and I think Other was the option that was winning with 38%, and Angus Robertson was behind that. So we'll have to see what the members choose. Will it mainly be a leadership election fought over the constitutional question and how to, to get a referendum? Or will there be issues such as, you know, gender reform, which some people might not think is, you know, should be the central element of, of government because it should be relatively uncontentious. But this does seem to have divided the SNP. Will it be schools? I mean, what are the issues that you think this, this leadership election might be won and lost on? Gender recognition less so. I think the reason for that is a lot of the people who were very opposed to gender recognition reform have left and joined the ALBA party. So that sort of reduces 
within the SNP how many people are feeling really extreme sides of the argument. So it will it will all come back to the constitution. There's been all kinds of constitutional wrangling going on for the last six, seven, eight years um, after 2014, especially after Brexit. Uh, there's a real push to, to try and get independence back on the agenda. But the how to do that is, is really the question. And I suppose more and more, the why comes back into it. Nobody's really been making the case for independence. And I know that people feel that during the pandemic, sort of seeing Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP do things differently at Hollywood and showing how devolution works, almost kind of acted like campaigning, but nobody is really doing the job that needs to be done of making the economic case, making the democratic case for independence. And unfortunately, it's to be seen what will happen. Will there be this SNP conference on democracy in March or not? We don't know if that's going ahead as of today. We'll have to wait and see, and hopefully some decisions can be can be made at that. So there are two key events now coming up for the SNP. You've got this leadership election. You've also got a special conference on the constitutional question, how to move forward and get that referendum that the SNP want. Now, is that latter one that seems particularly difficult to me. Nicola Sturgeon's plan, as you've said, a de facto referendum using the next general election as a de facto referendum. That obviously just won't be accepted by Westminster. The various alternatives which have been proposed, I also don't really see how that's going to work. And a cynic might say this is potentially why Nicola Sturgeon has resigned. So she's run out of road. There isn't a clear path to independence. And therefore, what are you going to do? Right. And so it does seem to me that whoever replaces her is going to have the same problem. What do you make of that? I think it's undeniable that Nicola Sturgeon has left her successor in a very difficult position because she was quite clear that she wanted to go ahead with the de facto referendum via Westminster. And over the months, she sort of rolled back on that further and further. And now whatever happens at this conference, whenever the conference happens, it could be seen as a U-turn. It could be seen as the SNP abandoning kind of the desire to push for independence as, as soon as possible. She's had Stephen Flynn, who's the SNP Westminster leader, still quite new to the role. He's been promoting the idea of the de facto referendum through Westminster. So it leaves him in a little bit of a difficult situation. Basically, at the conference, the, the official kind of SNP motion reads that there could be a de facto referendum through Westminster. Alternatively, there could be one through Holyrood. Now, there's not going to be another Holyrood election until 2026. So that is quite controversial. And the other option is effectively, let's have a general election and let's use it as a mandate to push for Section 30 to deliver, for the Westminster to deliver a Section 30 so that we can hold our own referendum at Holyrood. Now, that is quite similar to things that the SNP have run on in the past. So it's not 100% clear within the movement which is the most popular option. And of course, SNP members can put forward amendments. I'm aware of some amendments that people are putting together that are calling for Holyrood to uh, hold a snap election now. Um, but that is quite a complex constitutional issue. It's not like Westminster, where the prime minister can kind of just hold an election um, on a whim. I think the first minister would have to resign. And I know I've heard some conspiracy theories that this is what Nicola is doing today. But I'm pretty, pretty certain that it's not. <laughs> Difficult question. In a couple of sentences, what's the one thing that Nicola Sturgeon will be remembered for? What will her premiership be remembered for? Sorry, what is going to be her key legacy? For me, it's communication. For me, it's putting Scotland on the map. I don't think that there has ever been 
as much of an awareness of devolution as there, there has been during Nicola's time in office. And I hope that's something that can remain and obviously push forward until independence, not just devolution. That was Laura Webster, who said it was Nicola Sturgeon's communication skills, which she would be remembered for. Let's now, though, look at some other notable aspects of her long and very electorally successful career. Sturgeon first entered the political fray at 21 years old, running in the 1992 UK general election. That was a reaction, she said, to having grown up under Margaret Thatcher. She was Scotland's youngest candidate. Sturgeon ran in UK elections again in 1997, but again without success. And then in 1999, she became one of the first wave of MSP, so members of the Scottish Parliament, elected to the Scottish Parliament. In 2004, Sturgeon went on to stand for leader of the SNP, but withdrew after polling suggested she would lose to former leader Alex Salmond. Instead, she joined him as his running mate. They won. For her first eight years as an MSP, Sturgeon had been elected to Holyrood on the party list, and it wasn't until the breakthrough 2007 election that she was first elected as a constituency MSP. This is the first ever SNP victory in a general election in the city of Glasgow, and it will not... It will not be the last. Now, scoring excellent victories right across the country this evening from... Trisha Marwick in Central Fife to Alex Salmond in Gordon. But the night, the night has some way to go. Uh, there are many seats to declare and many votes still to be counted. But at this stage of the evening, I am extremely proud of the positive, upbeat and visionary campaign that the SNP has conducted. And if tonight the people of Scotland place their trust in us, then we will work on behalf of our country to take it forward, because we have nothing but ambition for the great nation of Scotland. The SNP went on to win that election in Scotland, forming a minority government and making Nicola Sturgeon the country's deputy first minister. In 2011, the SNP would win a majority at Holyrood, a stunning achievement given the proportional electoral system. And it was that mandate which led to then Prime Minister David Cameron agreeing to allow a Scottish independence referendum. Hi, my name's Kirsty. I'm going to be born on the 18th of September 2014, the very same day as the referendum on independence for Scotland. The question is, what kind of country will I grow up in? Will it be a Scotland that is fairer, more prosperous, a Scotland where I can reach my full potential? Or will it still be a country ruled by Westminster? country that is still the fourth most unequal in the developed world. That referendum took place on September the 18th, 2014. Well, we've got a few results uh, still to come uh, this evening, so I'm not going to concede anything at the moment. Uh, obviously, there have been some spectacularly good results for yes, not least the one in the city of Glasgow here. And I think we've seen a number of Labour heartlands voting yes, but we've got a few results still to come. There have been some that have been I suppose uh, more uh, disappointing for yes, but there's a, a way still to go before we get to the, the final tally. The Scottish people ultimately voted against independence and the next day, Alex Salmond resigned. Sturgeon stood unopposed for the party leadership and in November 2014 became Scotland's first minister, just in time to lead the SNP into the 2015 general election. 
Sky Scotland, it's Nicola here. We're about to kick off our Westminster campaign right here in the Hydro in Glasgow. I need you to be as fired up and ready to go as you were during the referendum campaign so that we can send a strong team of SNP MPs to Westminster to hold the London parties to account, to make sure they deliver on their promises. Let's get out there. Let's do it. I said she'll be the most accessible First Minister ever. So let's call her onto the stage. Please welcome our new party leader, the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon. The SNP won a landslide in that election, taking 56 of 59 Scottish seats in Westminster. And from then on, it was one electoral success after another. Alas, Sturgeon's time in power hasn't been free of scandal. In 2017, the Scottish government received two complaints of sexual misconduct against former First Minister Alex Salmond. And following a Scottish government investigation, he resigned from the SNP. Yet Salmond was later cleared on all charges and went on to successfully sue the government for what he claimed was its botched investigation. In the wake of that case, a Scottish parliamentary committee was set up to examine its handling by the government, and Salmon accused Sturgeon of plotting against him. Sturgeon denied it. The whole thing was not pretty. It was the government who were found to have been acted unlawfully, unfairly, and tainted by apparent bias. I know that the First Minister asserts that I have to prove a case. I don't. That has already been done. There have been two court cases, two judges, one jury. In this inquiry, it's the Scottish government, a government which has already admitted to behaving unlawfully, who are under examination. I feel I must rebut the absurd suggestion that anyone acted with malice or as part of a plot against Alex Salmond. That claim is not based in any fact. What happened is this and it is simple. A number of women made serious complaints about Alex Salmond's behaviour. The government, despite the mistake it undoubtedly made, tried to do the right thing. As First Minister, I refused to follow the age-old pattern of allowing a powerful man to use his status and connections to get what he wants. The police conducted an independent criminal investigation. The Crown Office, as it does in prosecutions every single day of the week, considered the evidence and decided there was a case to answer. Ultimately, that committee found that Sturgeon hadn't broken the ministerial code, but they did find she had misled MSPs over a meeting she'd have with Salmond. She'd had with Salmond to discuss the complaints. She survived that scandal, though, and back in the driving seat, Sturgeon put Scottish independence front and centre once again. This time around, Westminster was not inclined to voluntarily allow for an independence referendum, and so a battle in the courts ensued. In November last year, this was Sturgeon's response when the UK Supreme Court ruled in the Westminster government's favour. A so-called partnership in which one partner is denied the right to choose a different future, or even to ask itself the question, cannot be described in any way as voluntary or even a partnership at all. So this ruling confirms that the notion of the UK as a voluntary partnership of nations, if it ever was a reality, is no longer a reality. As you heard in my interview with Laura Webster, the constitutional battle hasn't moved on too much from there. One thing we haven't mentioned so far, though, is a key decision Nicola Sturgeon made in 2021. That was to go into coalition with the Scottish Greens. 
that coalition remains in place. And earlier today, I spoke to Ross Greer, a Green MSP, to find out what Sturgeon's resignation means for his party. I started by asking Ross whether a new SNP leader could in fact cause the breakdown of the SNP Green Deal. Bringing us into government in the first place was Nicola Sturgeon's idea. It will be, if ever, if ever be to, to her credit, and, and obviously I'm grateful to her for that. But the Butte House Agreement, the agreement that brought the Greens into the Scottish government, was endorsed by more than 90% of SNP members, more than 80% of Green members, both parties' national executives, both party councils. It's got the support of both parliamentary groups. So as much as Nicola Sturgeon was very much the driving force behind implementing it in the first place, the agreement that we struck is very popular with the overwhelming majority of SNP members, and it delivers on a lot of policies that a lot of SNP members support. Some of them might not have been in their own party's manifesto, they, they came from the Green Manifesto instead. But as far as we're concerned, the government continues, and sad to see Nicola Sturgeon uh, leave the, the government. She's had such a huge impact on it. All of our shared agenda points, the, the things the Greens will be delivering, like the, the new system of rent controls that we'll be delivering for Scotland, the ban on LGBTQ conversion therapy torture, these are all things that will continue because they're already in the programme for government and they're already what our two parties have agreed to. I accept you've got this agreement which will still remain in place unless they elect someone who wants to rip it up, but that doesn't seem particularly likely. Circumstances do change, though, and so it will make a difference what the next first minister decides when responding to those changing circumstances. I suppose an obvious one here might be when it comes to reforms, when it comes to gender self-ID. Nicola Sturgeon was sort of very strongly in favour, even when confronted by opposition from Westminster. She seemed to be willing to, to take on Westminster to try and push this through. If, say, the next leader is more tries to accommodate Westminster, let's say, and sort of says, actually, this isn't a priority now. Is that the kind of thing that could be a red line for the Green Party in, in Scotland? Is there anything that you can plausibly imagine would cause the Greens to, to leave government? I'm quite sure you could come up with a hypothetical for a set of policy proposals that a new SNP leader embarked on that, that we just wouldn't be able to stomach or, or reneging on agreements that we've come up with. But that feels really unlikely, and specifically on gender recognition reform. Nicola Sturgeon was and is absolutely committed to that and committed to protecting the, the trans community. But as much as I don't want to get drawn too much into the internal dynamics of an SNP leadership election, I think you would struggle to win the leadership of the Scottish National Party if your platform included allowing Westminster to veto legislation that had been passed by the Scottish Parliament, especially legislation that had been passed by an overwhelming majority, more than the, about two thirds, and was in most parties' manifestos at the last election. If you want to lead the main party of the Scottish independence movement, if you believe Scotland should have the right to decide its own future, allowing Westminster to veto legislation, that's not something that's going to compel a lot of SNP party members, I would imagine. There's a section of the independence movement, very small section of the independence movement, uh, who are obviously very opposed to advancing trans rights and advancing the Gender Recognition Act. Most of those people who were in the SNP left the SNP two years ago to join Alex Salmon's outfit. I think with the hundred and whatever thousand people who are left, defence of trans rights is actually something that is increasingly embedded in their party culture just as it is in the Scottish Greens party culture, certainly not an issue that we would be deviating or compromising an inch on. One of the main charges sort of put to Nicola Sturgeon, and this happened at her press conference today as well, is that the focus on independence has meant she's potentially dropped the ball on other issues of, of government. And in particular, what often comes up is the failure to close the education attainment gap, which she set as one of her big challenges, one of her big missions. And statistics suggest she has failed. Now, 
the Greens are in government with the SNP, so those criticisms should also be, to some degree, levelled at you, or you should be able to, to answer to them. And I, I wonder what you make of that. What do you make of the fact that there are measures of inequality that the SNP and now the SNP and Green government haven't really dealt with particularly effectively? I think over the long term, it's true to say that there hasn't been enough ambition on tackling child poverty. And specifically on the, the educational attainment gap, we all recognise that you can't close a poverty-related attainment gap without eradicating poverty. We shouldn't treat teachers like something between a, a social worker and a miracle worker and expect them to fix all the problems that children arrive at school suffering from. But we are making progress. We're making progress to an extent that you don't see elsewhere in the UK now. So the, the IFS, not exactly allies of left and progressive movements, have just published a report saying that Scotland has the most progressive tax and social security system anywhere in the UK. And in fact, the lowest income families will, in the coming year, be £2,000 better off than they otherwise would have been. And obviously, the, the wealthiest, the highest income families will be worse off to pay for that because in 2018, the Greens persuaded the government to raise income income tax on high earners and cut it on those in the lowest incomes. We've just done that again now. So from the 1st of April, the higher and additional rates of income tax are going up. We're delivering the Scottish child payments, that's £25 a week that just doesn't have a, a comparison elsewhere in the UK. You know, child poverty is actually going down in Scotland. It's the lowest level of anywhere in the UK. It is still at about 20% though, and that is not nearly good enough. And all of us who've been involved in government, whether it's myself or others in the Greens have been involved for about 18 months coming up on two years or those who've been involved for, for 15 years uh, or 16 as it is now I think for, for some of our colleagues and um, we all need to say actually we've not gone far enough we've not gone far enough on child poverty we've not gone far enough on tackling the climate crisis we've not gone far enough on advancing LGBTQ equality and, and a whole range of other issues violence against women would be another one there's much much more to do I think it's also absolutely fair to say that some of these things wouldn't have happened at all. The progress that has been made wouldn't have been made without Nicola Sturgeon as the driving force. Things like the Scottish Child Payment, that was absolutely something driven by Nicola Sturgeon. If you look at other areas, obviously, you know, free bus travel for under 22s, for example, to help lift children and families out of poverty, that's absolutely a green policy. My, my party wants to take credit for that. But I'm absolutely willing to say for something like the, the Child Payment, that was Nicola Sturgeon. Nicola Sturgeon's singular vision to tackle child poverty is the reason that child payment is being delivered and will be the reason that a number of families are lifted out of poverty this year. Nicola Sturgeon, it's hard to imagine a more effective politician and in a way a more popular politician. And I mean, I know she said she's resigning because she's become divisive because she's been in power for so long. But in a way, she has a, a remarkable appeal beyond divides because of her, she exudes confidence. People seem to think she's very confident. Whether or not that's true, that, that seems to be what people believe about her. And I can't really think of a better figurehead for the independence movement. And yet, support for independence has hovered, barely changed really, since the referendum in 2014. You know, potentially polls are a little bit closer, but there was a recent poll putting support for no at 56, which is a little bit higher than it was in, in that referendum back in 2014. So does the failure of the polls to move in any decisive way, even with an incredibly popular first minister in the form of Nicola Sturgeon, make you think that potentially this is not going to happen anytime soon. I mean, what could the SNP do now to improve on Nicola Sturgeon to try and get over that line and have a consistent amount of support for independence? It's interesting because the, the same folk who put it to us that we've not been able to shift independence into being a clear and stable majority are usually the same people who say that we 
concentrate too much on independence and not enough on uh, domestic issues. And I think it's actually because there have been so many domestic challenges, obviously COVID over the last couple of years, but beyond that, economic challenges, tackling child poverty, big global crises like the, the climate and nature emergency that have taken up so much of the Scottish government's focus that naturally there maybe hasn't been the focus on independence that those of us who want to achieve it would like to see. And that's been for, for very understandable reasons. And yeah, I mean, Nicholas Sturgeon is the best figurehead you could imagine for the independence movement in terms of stability, competence and broad public popularity in a way that no other politician in the UK has achieved. But the independence movement is a movement. We're not asking people to vote yes in a future referendum to whoever the, the first minister is at that point in the way that in 2014, thank God, we weren't asking people to vote yes to Alex Salmond and, and no for David Cameron. Independence as a concept goes beyond any of us. An independence movement, if it's relying on the popul personal popularity of one or two individuals, is never going to succeed because what we want to achieve is the kind of really long-lasting permanent constitutional change. It goes beyond, you know, I don't think political parties should be relying on the personality of their leader to win an election, but that leader's personality doesn't matter for what that party will do in government. Trying to achieve independence is totally different to that. And what we as a movement need to do now is focus much, much more on the arguments for independence, the urgency of independence, and less on process. We've spent far too much of the last eight years talking about the process of achieving a referendum, the process of achieving independence. And actually, I think one of the lessons that you can draw from Nicola's style of, of campaigning, certainly, is when you go out there and just talk to people about why independence is necessary, how with the powers of independence, we can raise the minimum wage to a level above the, uh, the poverty line how we can take basic steps to improve people's dignity in life. We can bring in a real windfall tax, for example, and not the one with a 90% loophole that the Tories have. That's what will shift the dial in favour of independence. But I think back to 2014, I worked for the Yes campaign back then. That was a two-year campaign, and for the first 18 months, the polls didn't move. In the last six months, they moved from about 30% to the point where we almost won. So even if we've not seen huge movement in the polls recently, we're starting off from a point 50-50, and we know from experience that the more people think about independence, the more people talk about independence, the more likely they are to support it. So if we're heading towards that de facto referendum, the 2024 general election, I think we're all quite confident that if independence is a central question to that general election in Scotland, which we've decided it will be, then starting off from 50-50 puts us in a very, very strong starting point to achieve quite a clear and stable majority. That was Ross Greer speaking to me earlier today. Before we get on to Corbyn, I need to introduce our co-host, Riley Quinn. Sorry, normally I introduce my co-host a lot earlier, but it was just, you, we happened to have booked you in on a day when Britain's most successful politician made a surprise resignation in the morning. So blame Nicola Sturgeon. Yeah, that's, that's quite all right. Like, I'm mainly here to talk about probably my favorite subject in the entire world, which is the possibility that the U.S. Mint might create a trillion dollar <laughs> coin as an end run around the debt ceiling standoff. It's something I love to think about. I love thinking about the physicality of the coin. But you know what? When you're in the business that we are, you have to make some concessions to the news. I just think it would have been polite of them to ask first. <laughs> just been getting constant messages from Riley in the other room. When are we going to talk about the coin? When are we going to talk about the coin? We will get onto the coin. First, though, we are going to talk about Labour. This was Keir Starmer when he was running to be Labour leader. Well, look, the attacks on Jeremy Corbyn in that election we've just had were terrible, and they came back at us on the door. They vilified him, and they knew what they were doing, and they knew why they were doing it. And they do it to every Labour leader, and they know why they're doing it. And this was Keir Starmer today, 
Let me be very clear about that. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn will not stand for Labour at the next general election as a Labour Party candidate. Uh, what I said about the party changing, I meant, and we are not going back. And that is why Jeremy Corbyn will not stand as a Labour candidate at the next general election. From he was viciously smeared as leader to he's not even fit to be an MP. Three years is a long time in politics when you're Sir Keir Starmer. That announcement came on a morning where left-wingers were urged to leave the party if they weren't happy with its current direction. And that included left-wing Jews. This was Margaret Hodge on Radio 4's Today programme. Spell out what uh, is being hinted at by Sakir this morning. You think even Jews who agree with Corbyn, who are arch critics of Israel and Zionism, you don't want them in the Labour Party anymore? Um, I, they have got to think again. It's not just the anti-Zionism, Nick, if I can say it, that. The party is fundamentally transformed. Our attitude to business has changed. Um, our attitude to uh, global, global relations. Sure, but you don't normally to invite NATO people to leave a party you disagree with. You're inviting them to go. I'm inviting them to, to, if they feel uncomfortable in a party that will not tolerate you hate, that supports businesses in the economy, that will support NATO in the, in, on the international arena, this is not the party for them. If you feel uncomfortable in a party that supports business and NATO, you should leave. It does make you think whether Hodge's priority really was fighting racism all along. The new blitz from the Labour leadership and its allies came on the day that EHRC announced Labour was no longer in special measures. That was a judgment which the left-wing group Jewish Voice for Labour expressed concern about. So this is from their statement. We understand that the Equality and Human Rights Commission considers that the Labour Party's action plan on anti-Semitism has been satisfactorily delivered. This news is alarming. Jews like us do not feel safe in Keir Starmer's Labour Party. Since mid-2021, Jewish Voice for Labour has repeatedly alerted the EHRC to the disproportionate targeting of Jewish members of the Labour Party for disciplinary action over allegations of anti-Semitism. Ironically, this targeting of Jews seems to be reinforcing the claim for success of the action plan in the name of combating anti-Semitism. They say 60 of their Jewish members have been targeted by Labour's disciplinary apparatus, and they say this. Jewish members have been accused on two main counts. First, for challenging the way the party interprets and purports to eradicate anti-Semitism. Second, for criticising the political ideology of Zionism or the State of Israel. But Jews have long disagreed with each other on these points. It is abhorrent for the Labour Party to effectively designate progressive or socialist Jewish political traditions as anti-Semitic, with the EHRC's apparent stamp of approval. In some Labour Party constituencies, the situation has deteriorated to the point where Jews who do not support Israel or who continue to support former Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn have become too frightened to attend party meetings for fear of intimidation and abuse. Worse, they believe that such intimidation and abuse will go unchallenged. What's worse still, this belief is justified. JVL has reported to the EHRC that not a single Jewish JVL member who has complained of anti-Semitism directed against them has had their complaint upheld. Worth noting, the HRC is made up of commissioners appointed by the government, meaning its independence on political matters has been subject to question. And the idea that anyone who possibly questions any of its conclusions should not be allowed in one of the two major parties in this country, to me, seems rather ridiculous. Starmerism and Corbynism are two distinct brands of political management. And, you know, Starmerism is essentially political management as a media management product, project, rather. And, you know, Corbynism sort of eschewed that that approach to politics, preferring actual politics. And when I talk about a media management product, uh, project, 
I mean that Starmerism is basically a repudiation of Corbynism, which basically, if you want to think about it in material terms, largely aimed to align us with the social democratic nations in Europe and to portray this as pretty much uniquely toxic, erecting a thick barrier between this political possibility and any kind of plausibility of it actually being created. And so we talk about an apology tour conducted on the television and the papers and expensive fundraisers to specifically an elite that's been pandered to by the Anglo-American style of neoliberalism, such as the CBI, outsourcing firms, hedge fund billionaires, political mega donors, and so on and so forth. The people for whom this relentless upward transfer of wealth is basically desirable and represents the same kind of expansion of political possibility that Corbynism represented to us, therefore. Starmerism must reject Corbynism and Corbyn himself, or the apology tour is not complete and Starmer is not a safe pair of hands. But fundamentally, I talk about this as a project of media and image management because the concerns it responds to in order to be safe for CBI, for example, have to be elite concerns. And those are culture war meta commentary, right? The migrant crisis, the trans debate, things of that nature, things that could be metabolized into these kinds of culture war arguments. And it specifically avoids concerns like, can I get a doctor? Can my kid go to school? Will I freeze? Because those can't be metabolized by what are essentially competing media fandoms and questions of who is a good person? Am I a good person for being, um, uh, for being nice and for feeling sad? about you know, crackdowns on migrants and political dissent? Or am I a hard-nosed realist who feels actually joy at the exercise of power? So, you know, I think fundamentally, Starmerism required the expulsion of Corbyn in order to be credible to the political constituency that it was aimed at. The big question on everyone's lips, will Jeremy Corbyn stand as an independent in Islington North? He has released a statement very recently, sort of in the last hour or so. He says, Keir Starmer's statement about my future is a flagrant attack on the democratic rights of Islington North Labour Party members. It's up to them, not party leaders, to decide who their candidate should be. And he says, he's proud to represent the Labour movement in Parliament through my constituency. I am focused on standing up for workers on the picket line, the marginalised, and all those worried about their futures. That is what I'll continue to do. I suggest the Labour Party does the same. So he's clearly not announcing his, his um, candidacy um, as an independent. My sense is he, he, he wants to try and get the support of his local members and see if that creates a bit of buzz. What if he were, though? What if he were to stand as an independent? What would the constituents of Islington North do? Well, my colleague Stephen Meffin visited the constituency this morning after that announcement and found some disquiet at Keir Starmer's decision. Hardworking, sincere politicians we've ever seen. My family and I are always supporters of him and we'll always be supporters of him. I pray that he's running as an independent because we will be voting for him. And I know that most of my friends as well and everybody in Islington should vote for him. And if they're honest, Parliament knows it's been a stitch-up job and they know what they've done to Jeremy Corbyn. You've got a message for Keir Starmer? Um, he really needs to take a hard look in the mirror at himself and be honest about what he stands for and what the real people want. I understand he's determined to win the election at all costs, but remember how he got there and who he represents. It's the Labour Party. I think that is deplorable because um, Jeremy Corbyn, he's had such a, a long career uh, and um, established one at that, and he's always been there for the people. And that's what I believe. And you know, any other smear campaigns that they have against him. It's not really fair on him, to be honest. And I do hope that that does change and it does get overruled. But um, yeah, that's what I think about it. So and if he stood as an independent, would you vote for him? Of course.
course, I would definitely vote for him, you know, given the chance to. You know, I feel like us as a people, we need a voice and we also need someone to stand up for us, especially with the cost of living and how it's affected everyone and their mental health. And, you know, there are people here, you never know, people walking past us right now that don't have anything to eat and they don't have their next meal. So we do have to be very um, vigilant and we do have to understand that it does affect other people, even if it doesn't affect you. I thought that the Labour Party and all the infighting that Jeremy Corbyn was uh, hung out to dry, if, if I'm honest. And um, it was misunderstood. And um, I think it should be down to the voters, not, not to the management of the Labour Party to decide who an MP is and who, who isn't. So Vox Pop's not representative samples. We can't say that um, 100% of the constituents of Islington North are annoyed at Keir Starmer for having banned Jeremy Corbyn for standing. But I mean, if he does stand as an independent, I mean, I think it's going to be difficult to bet on the outcome of that election. I think Jeremy Corbyn, you know, clearly has a decent chance of winning. He's been an MP for four decades, very well known. If anyone can beat the Labour juggernaut, it probably is him. It certainly will be interesting if he does. So from a journalistic perspective, I hope he does stand as an independent. Obviously, it's going to put momentum and left-wing Labour MPs in a bit of a difficult position. When I get a new co-host on this show, I often ask them what stories they'd be keen to talk about. It means you can get to know them a little bit more, although Riley you'll know from Trash Future anyway, but in principle, brings out the best in them. Yesterday, I asked Riley, what do you want to talk about? He told me the trillion dollar coin. This is alien to me. I turned to Google to find out what the hell he was talking about. Here are some headlines for you. The trillion dollar question, could a coin save the day? Since the New York Times, the latest standoff over raising the nation's debt ceiling is giving new life to an old theory about how to avoid a default. You've also got the Atlantic. The trillion dollar coin might be the least bad option. And then market watch opinion. And this is probably the best headline. An absurd issue demands an absurd solution. Let's mint a bazillion dollar coin to bring the curtain down forever on the Republicans' farcical debt ceiling theater. Riley, I mean, you can probably divide our audience into people who know what the hell is going on here and people who don't. I, I'm somewhere in between, I would like to think. Why is the US government considering minting a trillion dollar coin? To be clear, the US government is absolutely not considering minting a trillion dollar coin. It just should. Because of those headlines that you read, the third one bears the closest relationship to reality, which is that the debt ceiling is an absurd farce and a procedural trick. And we can talk about how that came to be. And that an absurd farce and procedural trick requires an equally absurd, but in the opposite direction solution to counter it. So we talk about this, this idea, this trillion dollar coin, right? And this trillion dollar coin is related to the debt ceiling. I think in order to understand this, we need to understand what the debt ceiling is and how it functions. So before 1917, by the way, a lot of this is based on the fantastic writing of Rohan Gray and Nathan Tankis, who I must recommend. But before 2017, whenever the U.S. government wanted to spend money on something, say build a bridge or whatever, uh, Congress would have to pass two laws, one mandating that we're going to do the thing and the other mandating how we're going to pay for it. So that question always answered in in any new policy. Go figure. And what actually happened was the debt ceiling was created in 1917 through the um, Second Liberty Bond Act where what we did was we said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to center all of that discretionary power to raise debt and allocate it in the executive. So actually, what it initially, the debt ceiling, was something that empowered the executive uh, branch of the United States government more discretion by how to finance its various projects. And then that was um, changed again in 1939, but fundamentally kept trundling along, with some exceptions, for more or less uh, 60 years, 
until we saw the entry of the new right into Congress in the 1990s, where they began seeing that, hang on, this thing that should be a matter of course, where we just allow the government to issue more debt so we can do more things because we're doing more things year by year because we are still a going concern, so to speak. This thing, uh, we can actually use it to hold a gun to the head of the executive, especially when it's a democratic executive. And so that then all of a sudden, this, this thing that's supposed to just be a routine sort of like a raising of the debt ceiling becomes a political because you're able to grandstand about it and, and complain about the national debt around the time when that became, you know, extremely popular thing to do. And then we really saw it become successive crises after the Tea Party uh, in 2011, where then we've had several debt ceiling standoffs. We had a government shutdown. If you remember the last time the government shut down, a small boy came to mow the White House lawn and Trump yelled at him like invasion of the body snatchers. It's one of my favorite photos of him. Anyway, and all of this basically means that there is this numerical ceiling, uh, the ceiling of the face value of the debt the United States government can issue. Now, there are several other laws at play here. There is a constitutional amendment that says that the U.S. cannot default on its debt at all, right? And then there's also something I'll get to in a little bit, which is a very funny act from 1990, I think six, that solves this problem by accident. So we're in a position where the Treasury is unable to, to issue new debt. They are but if not, they don't issue new debt, they will be run afoul of the Constitution and then cause the U.S. to default. And after 2011, the U.S. actually had its credit rating downgraded, which if you understand the role of a global reserve currency, it's hilarious because it shouldn't be able to be downgraded. It's the standard by which others are measured. It's the currency in which things like oil are transacted in. Like if you want to buy oil, you have to buy U.S. dollars, which is incidentally one of the ways that the U.S. government, the U.S. financial system exports its inflation around the world. Nevertheless, what we have is uh, a downgrading of their debt that happens then, which again, shouldn't be possible. So where does this whole idea of the coin come in, right? Because if you exceed the demands of the Republicans, then essentially what you're going to do is you're going to say, all right, fine, we're going to mm -hmm. cut Medicare, we're going to cut Social Security, we're going to privatize these things. And then that allows the Republicans to like govern from a minority in one of the three branches of U.S. government. which like, They use it as, as leverage, right? So, so they say we're, we will increase the debt ceiling, which basically means the government can pay its bills. It doesn't default. But we're only going to do that mm -hmm. if you cut spending on Medicare, if you cut spending on healthcare, if you cut spending on all these things that the Democrats and you know, the majority of the population like. And so they're holding yeah. the government hostage. And the trillion dollar coin is to say, well, instead of you know, being reliant on the Republicans to raise the debt ceiling, what if we used our power to mint money and just gave it to the treasury? Do they just, they just print a trillion dollar coin and does someone roll it up the hill to the treasury? Also, what happens if someone steals it along the way? Uh, well, pretty, well, number one, good luck spending it because there's one trillion dollar <laughs> coin. And what are you going to ask? Like the grocery store, hey, hey, you got change for a trilly? <laughs> can you go to the Federal Reserve? I, I, can you, sorry, I'm going to buy this pack of gum. Can you please give me $999,999,999,999.50 in change? You couldn't possibly use it. Although one of the dumbest conservative columnists in Canadian media, actually, John Kay, did propose that this would be a problem, that people would counterfeit or steal the coin. So how they would be able to mint it is actually very interesting because it is fully legal for the U.S. Mint to create a platinum, it has to be platinum, and weirdly, it has to be shiny. Like It has to be a certain level of polish and shine for it to count as an actual coin. 
and it has to have the words one trillion dollars printed on it. That's it. Okay. It could be the size the image of like of, a dime. Of minimum wage workers like furiously polishing a trillion dollar coin and it being like the perfect intro to an Adam Curtis documentary. <laughs> yeah, we just got to put some Brian Eno under it. <laughs> so essentially, right, you, what, you, what you have is the Mint is able to do this largely by accident also. They shouldn't, like, the, the law that allows them to do this, that allows them to counteract the procedural trick of the debt ceiling, and I'll say exactly how that works in a sec, is actually a law from the 1990s that was the collaboration of Philip Deal, the Mint director from 94 to 2000, and Mike Castle, a Republican who sponsored that, the legislation that allowed the Mint to produce coins of any denomination because they wanted to sell more commemorative coins so that the Mint could make a profit and the national debt could be reduced. That was the plan. It's just because of some like quite broad drafting, a piece of legislation that was intended to like allow the mint to create smaller denomination commemorative coins to get more people into the coin collecting hobby, sort of by accident enabled the creation of a trillion dollar coin because it basically doesn't say you can't. And so all you have to do is mint that coin, which you're allowed to do, make it out of platinum, and then take it to the Federal Reserve and then deposit it in the Federal Reserve and then you don't actually have to, you, then, then you just issue debt fr against that. You just borrow against that coin. Basically, you reduce the total amount of debt you have because you increase your assets. And so it's not even inflationary because it's not like that trillion dollars goes into the economy all at once anyway. It just basically funds what the government was going to do. It is a procedural trick equal and opposite to the other, I would say, stupider procedural trick. It's just that this one involves us getting to think about a giant coin. Ivram, I think I have a commemorative five pound coin commemorating Diana's death. I think I had that as a child. It reminds me I should look up if they're going for more than a fiver on eBay at the moment. Trillion. Question. Just for a trillion. Biden doesn't seem to want to mint a trillion dollar coin. I can't imagine why. Does that mm -hmm. mean we are going to see the Republicans hold Biden hostage and try and undermine the rest of his agenda and cut social security and cut healthcare? So that's the thing, right? The question is, are the Republicans insane enough to blow up the entire financial system? And I don't know, 12 years ago, I would have said probably not. But you, you really, prediction's a mugs game, right? And what we're looking at is a game of brinksmanship. And I mean, the, one of the reasons that I think this is worth talking about, and that we certainly talked about, is that the entire global financial system is a victim of these circus games going on in Washington. It's not just the U.S. economy, but because the U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency, it is every single economy that is being held hostage by like, I don't know, 160 some odd of the uh, you know of most like bizarre weirdos that uh, Florida could generate. And you know the question as to whether or not Biden will do it, I, I think that goes back to. Uh, have you ever talked about C. Wright Mills before? No, but I do. I've uh, no. Go on. Okay, so C. Wright Mills is a sociologist in the 1950s, and he has this concept that he uses to talk about nuclear pro proliferation, where the, the logic of more nuclear weapons makes us counterintuitively safer from nuclear annihilation, mm -hmm. which, I mean, is just... Mad, mutually assured destruction, right? Yeah, and he called the people who would say, no, we must, you know, um, fight more war to enjoy more peace, uh, crackpot realists. You know, people who, are, who insist that simple explanations are uh, never particularly sufficient, people who insist that... Um, that things are actually the opposite as what, as what they seem and so on and so on. I think, and I think this is a little bit of fiscal crackpot realism because the U.S., the sort of the great and the good of the Democratic Party, as well as the sort of 
uh, treasury mandarins and stuff are unwilling to countenance this idea, despite the fact that it's perfectly legal, because it is silly. That was a very concise, precise introduction to the issue of the trillion dollar coin. I certainly want one. I think actually Navarro Media has a commemorative coin, uh, which you can purchase at navarromedia.com forward slash shop. I'm not sure if we're ever going to use our ability to mint coins as a way of keeping us financially viable, but there we are. Riley Quinn, it has been an absolute joy being joined by you. My apologies that Nicola Sturgeon ate up so much of the show this evening. Yeah, I I had to go through everything I wanted to say about the trillion dollar coin, like rapping super fast like Eminem. But you know what? It was a really good verbal exercise. (laughs) Excellent. Navarro Live, providing people an opportunity to exercise verbally since just last week when we coined the name of the new show. Thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Make sure to come back tomorrow for another 6 p.m. broadcast. For now, you've been watching Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navarromedia.com support.